Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, April 1st, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. The real fool says in his heart that there is no God. Today we have a new issue of the Saxon Messenger, which we have just published online and at, um... Hewlett Packard's MagCloud magazine print-on-demand service. This is issue number 42, and I hope it's being published on April 1st is not an omen, because it's actually a couple of days later than we had hoped. Tonight we are going to present our final segment of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. It's subtitled Christianity and Slavery because the issue of slavery is a prevalent issue not only in the beginning of chapter 4 of Paul's epistle but also in the related epistle to Philemon which for several reasons we are also going to present here tonight. So this will be the end of our commentary on Colossians and also constitute a brief commentary on the epistle to Philemon. One of the underlying themes we have been building upon from what Paul of Tarsus has taught us in the first several chapters of this epistle to the Colossians is judgment. Paul of Tarsus began when he advised these Christians of Colossae that they should let no man judge them concerning feasts, Sabbaths, and other celebrations. And then he also informed them that they should not submit to the ordinances of men, nor should they worship angels, as he called them, who would prevent them from the use of those elements of God's creation that are beneficial to the satisfaction of the flesh, which was a basically a refutation of both Pharisaism and asceticism, or as the King James Version translates the term, will worship. However, Paul also informed these Colossians that because they had an assurance of life in Christ, they should choose to abstain from the sins of the world. Fornications, evil desires, covetousness, which Paul identified as a form of idolatry, and filthy communications, among which are blasphemies, deceits, slanders, ribaldry, and even the wrath of men, speaking in anger. Saying these things, Paul explained that in Christ, one is not Greek and Judean, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but altogether and in all ways anointed. Paul made a similar statement in Galatians chapter 3, where he had said, as it reads in the King James Version, for you are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, or Judean nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither 
male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And here is where many supposedly pious Christians have found or have even created much confusion. Here in Colossians, Paul is addressing the elect of Yahweh, just as in Galatians he is addressing those who were under the law. So with those statements and others, it can be proven that in both epistles, Paul is only addressing the dispersed descendants of Jacob Israel, to whom he was commissioned to bring the gospel of reconciliation. He was addressing the scattered Israelites, who had become certain of the tribes of the Greeks, and the scattered Israelites, who were called barbarians because they did not speak Greek, and the scattered Israelites, who had become the tribes of the Scythians, the scattered Israelites, who were slaves, and the scattered Israelites, who were free. There were also some Israelites remaining among the Judeans, as Paul had explained at length in Romans chapter 9. And of course, there were Israelite slaves, Israelites who were not slaves, and Israelites who were both male and female. Making these distinctions, Paul is not asserting that the station of any man or of any woman has changed in this world. Neither was Paul asserting that the nature of any individual in Christ could change. Rather, Paul is only stating that because they are all in Christ, that they should treat all they should all treat one another kindly, regardless of their station in life. But barbarians would still be barbarians, or else Paul would have told them to learn a new language because the term was only a reference to the fact that one did not speak Greek. Women would still be women or Paul would not have told them that they need to remain subject to their husbands. Those non-Israelites outside of the covenants and promises would have to remain outside of the covenants and promises or Paul would not have told these Colossians to walk in wisdom toward them that are without or them who are outside as he does here in this final chapter of this epistle. Slaves would still be slaves, and those who own slaves would still own slaves. However, both masters and slaves, as Paul had advised them here, should do good to one another in spite of their position in life. Thus Paul had written at the end of Colossians chapter 3, Bondmen, you be obedient in all respects, to fleshly masters, not with lip service as men-pleasers, but with simplicity of heart, fearing the prince. Whatever you would do, work heartily, as for the prince and not for men, knowing that from the prince you shall recover the return of the inheritance, the anointed prince you serve. But he doing wrong is provided for that which he has done wrong and there is not respect of the stature of persons. So, respect of the stature of persons does not prevent a slave from remaining a slave. There is not respect of the 
stature of persons because all are judged fairly aside from their position in life. That's what Paul means when he says that. Therefore, Paul continues in respect to masters. And he writes here in Colossians chapter 4, I'm sorry, in the last verses of Colossians chapter 3, Servants, subject yourselves with all fear to the masters, not only to the good and reasonable, but also to the crooked. For this is a benefit if through consciousness of Yahweh one endures suffering grief unrighteously. Note that Paul never commanded the slave owners that they must set their slaves free. And Paul exhorted the slaves who were Christians to work even more diligently for their Christian masters as if they were actually working for Christ himself. The Apostle Peter had written in this same manner in chapter 2 of his first epistle where he said, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Paul had made similar exhortations in his epistle to the Ephesians, Timothy and Titus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, after admonishing each Christian that in the calling in which he has been called, in this he must abide. Paul said, A bondman you have been called? It must not be a concern to you. But if you have the ability to come free, rather you use it. For he who is called a bondman in the prince is a freedman of the prince. Likewise, he who is called free is a bondman of Christ. So if one is a slave and becomes reconciled to Christ in the gospel, then one should nevertheless be content to remain a slave, having the assurance of an ultimate liberty in Christ. But if one could fairly acquire his freedom, it was of course fitting that he may do so. That's Paul's advice here. Slavery in the ancient world was a fact of life. Christians had the right to dispose of their own property as they themselves deem fit. According to the conviction of their own hearts, and slaves were never advised to defraud their masters. Slavery is also a fact of life in the modern world, but it's called corporatism. Here we must digress. In our humble opinion, reflecting on the historical events of recent times, nowhere is the tendency of the sheep of God's pasture to fall victim to emotional arguments and to thereby be led to forsake the word of God more evident than it is with the issue of slavery.
We have no care for Negroes who are outside of the covenants and promises of God and are therefore not even a matter of our consideration. But in the 19th century, a great war was fought and well over half a million white and Christian men had lost their lives. While the issue of slavery was not the primary reason for which the war was fought, the common people of the North were persuaded to fight in large degree by self-righteous preaching on the issue of slavery. This loss of so many white men was facilitated because so-called pastors had convinced men that slavery was an evil institution and that it had to be put to an end. Today the attitude continues, so the crime remains concealed, and the result is our continued destruction. If you don't believe that, just look at Atlanta. It looks like Sherman burnt it and it never turned white again. Yet those anti-slavery preachers and agitators were acting in a manner which is clearly contrary to the word of God and to the gospel of the apostles. For that reason, to us, this is the most signal proof in modern times that men can be easily led to follow the propaganda of the Antichrists and the judgments of the world, even when what is right by the standards of the world is not what the scripture informs us is right by the standards of the word of God. This is why we do not judge our brethren for anything according to the standards of the world. Over a half million men died in that war. And the aggressors were led to believe that they were fighting for the side of good, while in reality they were acting contrary to the word of God and fighting for something which was very, very wicked, judging and even slaughtering their own brothers on behalf of aliens, not for the word of God, but for the commandments of men. This is a clear example of the danger of choosing what the world thinks is right, instead of following what Yahweh, our God, says is right. This is just another example of what results when men make a choice, either consciously or through willful ignorance, to follow the laws of man rather than following the word of Yahweh their God. And that's the end of my digression on a slavery issue but it fits right in with the theme that we've carried throughout the last four or five presentations of this epistle. So after addressing and exhorting husbands and wives, children and parents, and masters and slaves, Paul returns to addressing the Colossians generally, and he says in chapter 4 
in verse 2. You persist firmly in prayer, being alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, praying also for us, in order that Yahweh would create an opportunity, or literally would open a door. The idiom also appears in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. In order that Yahweh would create an opportunity for the word, for us to speak of the mystery of the anointed, for which I also have been bound, that I may make it known, as it is necessary for me to speak, for which I have also been bound. Paul refers to his imprisonment in Rome on account of the gospel of Christ. He asks the assembly to pray on his behalf, that he would be able to say the things necessary in the defense of the gospel, which he has been compelled to undertake as a matter of his trial before Caesar. As we learned in the first chapter of the epistle to the Philippians, and in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul had mentioned his quote-unquote first answer, referring to the charges laid upon him, he had already presented a defense of the gospel, and evidently, because he mentioned first answer, hoped to present another, for which here he petitions the prayers of the saints at Colossae. The reference to the mystery of the anointed is not necessarily a reference to Christ himself, but to the people of Christ. It is to the people of Christ, the Old Testament children of Israel, to whom Paul is charged with bringing the gospel. It is of the people of Yahweh taken away captive into the nations of whom Asaph writes in the 83rd Psalm. And he says, For lo, thine enemies make a tumult, and they that hate thee have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people, and consulted against thy hidden ones. The children of Israel dispersed in the captivities of Assyria and Babylon are Yahweh's hidden ones. For that same reason, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3, For this cause I, Paul, captive of Christ Yahshua, on behalf of you of the nations, if indeed you have heard of the management of the family of the favor of Yahweh, which has been given me in regard to you. Seeing that by a revelation the mystery was made known to me, just as I had briefly written before, Besides which reading, you are able to perceive my understanding in the mystery of the anointed, which in other generations had not been made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed in his holy ambassadors and prophets by the Spirit, those nations which are the joint heirs and a joint body and partners of the promise in Christ Yahshua, through the good message of which I had become a servant in accordance with the gift of the favor of Yahweh which has been given to me in accordance with the operation of his power to me the least of all the saints has been given this favor 
to announce the good message to the nations, the unsearchable riches of the anointed, and to enlighten all concerning the management of the household of the mystery which was concealed from the ages by Yahweh, by whom all things are being established. Paul was called to reveal a mystery, the identity of the so-called hidden ones, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, in his ministry of reconciliation to the nations of scattered Israel, which would include the Romans and the Greeks, who are from tribes who departed from the main body of Israel many centuries before the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. That identity is the mystery of the anointed. The Jews hated Paul for that reason above all others, that he was taking the gospel of Christ to the scattered twelve tribes of Israel. As we read in Acts chapter 26, where Paul had said, And now, for the hope of the promise, having been made by Yahweh to our fathers, I stand being judged, for which our twelve tribes, serving in earnest, night and day, hope to attain. Concerning which hope, I am charged by the Jews. And Paul continues in that same light in verse 5. In reference to those outside, you walk in wisdom, buying the time. Even the King James Version has here, walk in wisdom towards them that are without redeeming the time. Them that are without are those outside. The phrase in reference to those outside may have been rendered pertaining to those outside, and it is precisely the exclusive statement which Paul intended, where the references supporting this translation are numerous. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul had said, For the account of the cross is folly to those who are going to die, but to those who are being preserved, to us it is the power of Yahweh. In other words, to those who are going to die, don't even preach the gospel. Well, how the hell would you know who they are? How could you walk down the street and tell you, t- tell anyone who they are? Who are those people who are going to die? The Judeo-Christians can't do it. The Judeo-Christians have to preach the gospel to everybody and then see who plays by their rules and maybe they get to choose who dies and who doesn't. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, don't even preach the gospel to those who are going to die. Once you understand the identity of the twelve tribes of Israel, you shouldn't even preach the gospel to a nigger, because he's one of those who are going to die, or a Chinaman, or anyone else who should be outside because the children of Israel should be keeping themselves separate in the first place. So Christians should evidently refrain from preaching the gospel of Christ to those who are outside of the covenants and promises of the Old Testament, 
Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul said, Now I explain to you, brethren, the good message which I have announced to you, and which you have received, and in which you have been established, and through which you are preserved, if you hold fast to each statement that I have announced to you, unless outside you have believed without purpose. So we see that there are people to whom the gospel of Christ should not be preached. And even if some of them hear it and believe it, if they are outside of the promises and covenants, then they, being outside, have believed without purpose. Paul had said something similar to this statement here in Colossians in his first epistle to the Thessalonians in chapter 4, where he advised them to endeavor earnestly to be at rest and to be busy with your own affairs and work with your own hands, just as we have instructed you, in order that you would walk decently compared with those outside and would have need of no one. In Galatians 6.10, Paul had urged Christians that, while we have occasion, we should work it good towards all, but especially towards those of the family of the faith. But doing good unto all, and walking decently or in wisdom in reference to outsiders, does not necessarily mean that Christians must have that same Christian love for outsiders which they should have for those of the family of the faith, which is the body of Christian Israel. In fact, Paul had told the Christians at Rome to prefer one another without hesitation in chapter 12 of Romans. So here he warns that Christians walk in wisdom towards those who are outside of the body of Christ, meaning that we should have discernment. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul prayed in reference to those who were persecuting the gospel, and he asked that we should be protected from those disgusting and wicked men, since the faith is not for all. Likewise, Paul had asked in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, What is it to me to judge those outside? Not at all should you judge those among you or within you. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul had warned his fellow Christians to do all things apart from murmuring and disputing, that you would be perfect and with unmixed blood, blameless children of Yahweh in the midst of a race crooked and perverted, among whom you appear as luminaries in the society. And these verses cannot be set in opposition to one another. One verse does not cancel out another. Therefore, it is manifest that Christians should not be attempting to convert everyone or anyone to Christ, because the faith is clearly not for all. According to scripture, there is a family of the faith, and everyone else is outside of the faith. The faith is governed by the promises which Yahweh had made to Abraham and the patriarchs through Jacob. 
The phrase which is translated as buying the time also appears in Ephesians chapter 5, where we also discussed the meaning of the Greek words when we presented that chapter here some months ago. There Paul had written, So then, watch precisely how you walk, not as the stupid, but as the wise, buying the time, because the days are evil. The days are evil, because where luminaries in the midst of a race, crooked... (laughs) and perverted and Paul says for this reason do not be foolish rather understand what is the will of the prince these certainly seem to be his instructions for how to walk in wisdom towards those who are outside by understanding what is the will of the prince who came only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and who expects those reconciled to him to keep his commandments. And Paul says in verse 6, Your speech always with good will, seasoned with salt. It is necessary for you to know in what manner to answer every single one. So you even should know what to tell a nigger. In Matthew chapter 5, Christ is recorded as having said, Blessed are the peacemakers, because they shall be called the sons of Yahweh. And I would tell any Negro to go thy way. Beat it. Blessed are the peacemakers, because they shall be called the sons of Yahweh. Blessed are those who are persecuted on account of righteousness, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they would reproach you and persecute you, and being liars, they would speak any evil against you on account of me. Rejoice and exult, because great is your reward in the heavens. For thusly had they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savor, with what shall it be salted? It avails for nothing more than it is cast outside to be trampled by man. In Proverbs chapter 10 we learn that a peacemaker is a peacemaker to God. A peacemaker, he that winks with his eyes deceitfully, procures griefs for men. In other words, you don't let the sins of other men, which you see with your eyes, you don't let them pass by without being spoken. And the verse ends, but he that reproves boldly is a peacemaker. He that reproves boldly is he who can expect to be reviled and persecuted by men. A man persecuted on account of righteousness, who does as the prophets of Israel had done by upholding the word of Yahweh his God, of Yahweh their God, and speaking the truth to one's brethren. Therefore, The salt of the earth is found in those children of Yahweh who maintain and speak the truth of Yahweh as the prophets of Yahweh had done. That's what what Yahshua Christ is calling the salt of the earth in Matthew chapter 5. 
And if they neglect that truth, then the salt has lost its savor, and it is good for nothing. So speech seasoned with salt is speech seasoned with the truth of God, for which men may be persecuted, but which they must nevertheless maintain. Likewise, Paul had explained in Ephesians chapter 4 that Christians should speak the truth with love in opposition to the systematizing of deception in order that we would be infants no longer, being tossed as waves and carried about in every wind of teaching by the trickery of men, in villainy, for the sake of the systematizing of deception. But speaking the truth with love, we may increase all things, for he who is the head, the Christ, and that is how we can be the salt of the earth. And if we don't do that, If perhaps we are children of God, we are salt which has lost its savor. This is the end of the didactic portion of the epistle. And from verse 7 we have a rather lengthy salutation. All of the things concerning me. Tukikos, the beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondman among the number of the prince, will make known to you whom I have sent to you for this very thing, that you would know of the things concerning us, and your hearts would be encouraged, with Onassimus, the faithful and beloved brother, who is one of yours, all things they will make known to you then. As we learn from the epistle which Paul had written to Philemon, Onassimus, who Paul informs us here is also a Colossian, was an escaped slave of Philemon, a man of the Christian assembly of Colossae. This epistle was taken to Colossae from Rome by Tuchicus and Onassimus, along with the epistle of Philemon. From verse 16 of this chapter, it is evident that these two men also brought with them a third epistle, which was written to the Laodiceans, and which is now lost. Laodicea, or Laodicea, was only about ten miles from Colossae, and it would have been expedient for the men to stop there along the path of their journey. Onassimus is only mentioned by Paul in these two epistles, and outside of them, we know nothing of either him or Philemon. Tuchicus was a fellow worker of Paul's from the time of his ministry in Ephesus. He was from Asia, as we learn in Acts chapter 20, and he, with all probability, may have been an Ephesian. He is mentioned as having delivered the the epistle to the Ephesians some time before this epistle was written. And while he was in Ephesus, Paul mentioned him as he wrote to Timothy, where he said, in chapter 4 of that epistle, Tuchicus I have sent to Ephesus. Timothy, being here in Rome with Paul when Colossians is written, by this time Tuchicus has also returned to Rome from Ephesus to be with Paul, so that Paul could send Tuchicus 
to Colossae with this epistle and Onassimus and the epistles to Philemon and the Laodiceans. From this we see not only the order of the writing of these epistles, but also that they were not written within a short space. Tychicus went from Rome to Ephesus and back, as Paul wrote to Timothy, and Timothy came to Paul, and only then were the epistles to the Colossians, Philemon, and the lost epistle to the Laodiceans written. For the reason that it is relevant to Onassimus, and because it also sheds light on Paul's Christian attitude in regards to slaves and their owners. We shall present the epistle of Philemon here this evening as we conclude our presentation of Colossians. And Paul says in verse 10 of Colossians chapter 4, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Marcus or Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he should come to you, receive him. And Jesus, who is called Eustace, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of Yahweh, who are of the circumcision, who have been a consolation to me. Now this verse may be read, and Jesus, who is called Eustace, who are of the circumcision. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of Yahweh who have been a consolation to me. The name Jesus is simply a different transliteration of the name from which we have Jesus. Eustace, or Justice, may have been the same individual as the Justice of Acts chapter 18, whose house had abutted the synagogue in Corinth, but the identification is far from certain. Aristarchus was with Paul from his first mission to Macedonia, and when Paul began his sojourn in Ephesus, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 19, he had been a fellow prisoner with Paul since Paul was sent in chains from Judea, as we read in Acts chapter 27, where Luke wrote, And entering into a ship of Adramidium, we launched, sailing, meaning to sail by the coasts of Asia, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. So Aristarchus must have been arrested with Paul in Jerusalem, but he was not mentioned until Paul is setting sail un under bonds, being a prisoner, to Rome, where Aristarchus is a prisoner with him, and spends much of his time in Rome at least much of it, with Paul, as we see that he's still with Paul here. This mark, being mentioned by Paul as the cousin of Barnabas, must therefore be the same mark of Acts chapter 15. So here we learn that Mark, whose value to the ministry Paul had doubted, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 15, had once again come to be esteemed by Paul. After his first mission in Anatolia, 
Paul and Barnabas had argued over Mark's willingness to work for the cause of the gospel. And Luke writes of them, And the contention was so sharp between them, meaning between Paul and Barnabas, over Mark, that they departed asunder, one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed into Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. It is only here that we learn that Mark and Barnabas are cousins, which seems to explain why Barnabas was so loyal to Mark. After the split, Paul only mentioned Barnabas again, where he spoke of him in Galatians and in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. However, Paul did not speak badly of him, despite their differences. But, of course, their differences were not related to the gospel or the truth of God. In his epistles, Paul only mentions Mark here and in Philemon. It is likely that this is also the same Mark who is mentioned at the end of 1 Peter and is the apostle held by tradition to have authored the gospel transmitted to him by Peter. The Gospel of Mark is believed to have been written in Italy, for which there is internal evidence, sometime after the death of Peter, which was certainly also after the death of Paul. And we see in verse 12, Paul referenced Epaphras. Epaphras, a bondman of Yahshua Christ, who is one of yours, greets you, always striving on your behalf in prayers that you would stand perfect and be fully assured in every purpose of Yahweh. For I testify for him that he has much labor for you and those in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis, another town which was very, very close to Laodicea. We had mentioned in um, the opening presentation of this epistle that at some point, and the ancient authors disagree on exactly when, but Tacitus is much more credible than Eusebius, who also mentions it, that these cities were, for the most part, destroyed in an earthquake around this time. And a lot of the Christian critics of Paul of Tarsus, I don't mean critics in a bad sense, but those who attempt to um, make commentaries and dissect what is going on in Paul's epistles, follow Eusebius, who dates this earthquake seven years later than Tacitus. And it's my personal opinion that Tacitus is more correct. If I'm not mistaken, Tacitus said it happened in the third year of Nero, and Eusebius in the tenth year of Nero. If it happened in... If Tacitus is correct then the earthquake already happened. The earthquake already happened perhaps a year or two years before Paul is writing this epistle to the Colossians. And the earthquake being done and over with, and the destroyed cities being rebuilt, as we have ancient testimony, I sincerely believe that they already happened, and for that reason Paul does not mention them. He has no need to mention 
in these epistles something which may have happened a year or two before the epistles were written. So Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis are all mentioned here. They were three cities that were very close together in the same part of Anatolia. I believe Hierapolis was three miles from Laodicea, Laodicea 10 miles west-northwest approximately to Colossae, 10 miles from Colossae. The King James Version here, in verse 13, where it says that Epaphras has much labor for the Colossians, the King James has zeal rather than labor apparently following manuscripts dating no earlier than the 9th century. We had um, discussed in the series on Martin Luther that the manuscripts the King James was translated from came from Stephanus, the scholar, and he was a legitimate scholar. He really was Robert Stephanus. And he had added to a manuscript collection that was used for an edition of the New Testament published by Erasmus. But if memory serves me correct, Stephanus only had slightly over two dozen manuscripts of the original Greek, and none of them dated before the 9th century. And Erasmus had less than half that number, and none of his dated before the 9th or 10th century. So the King James Version, for all the King James fans listening to this, is not based on the oldest manuscripts by any means. Not at all. Not even close. The Greek word ponos is labor here, but it may have been rendered as distress, suffering, trouble, toil, as something which results from labor. As we had mentioned in our presentation of Colossians chapter 1, we learn here that Paul's colleague Epaphras was also a Colossian, and it is also very likely that he was the Epaphroditus mentioned in the epistle to the Philippians. He is apparently with Paul and Timothy when this letter was written, but was not making the journey for its delivery. As we had also noted in that earlier presentation, the first chapter of this epistle attests that Epaphras had come to Paul with a report from Colossae. And it was evidently from Epaphras that the Colossians had first received the gospel of Christ. And Paul says in verse 14, Lucas, the beloved physician, greets you, and Damas. It is only from this closing chapter of Colossians that we learn that, Bar- that Mark and Barnabas are cousins. And the connection of this Mark to Barnabas reveals that Mark had ultimately been reconciled to Paul. It is only from this chapter that we learn that Epaphras was a Colossian. And it is only from this chapter that we learn the full context for the connection between Paul and Philemon and Onesimus within the setting of Paul's ministry. 
But now, it is only from this chapter that we learn that Luke, the author of the gospel by that name, and Paul's longtime companion, was a physician by trade. From Old Testament scripture, the trade seems to have been of little esteem very little esteem. However, Luke was a Greek, and among the Greeks, physicians were generally educated men, which Luke's style of writing reveals. Luke was first in Paul's company from at least as early as the time that Paul and Barnabas had first visited Antioch and the events of Acts chapters 14 and 15. We only know Damas, from these epistles to the Colossians and to Philemon, but also from the second epistle to Timothy, written not long before this epistle was written, where Paul had written that, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed into Thessalonica. While we are not told anything explicitly here, it must be ascertained that in a short time Damas had repented of his departure, had returned to Paul, and was accepted back into his companionship. And in verse 15, Colossians chapter 4, Greet the brethren in Laodicea and Nympha and the assembly at her house. Now, the Codex Claromontanus and the majority text have Numphas and the assembly at his house. The Codices Sinaiticus Alexandrinus and Ephraim Siri have Numpha and the assembly at their house, probably trying to play it safe. The text follows, the text of the Christogenian New Testament follows the Codex Vaticanus, because we believe that's the only one of the codices that preserved the sentence correctly. The word nymphae, from which that name nymphas comes, is primarily a young wife, a bride, and it was also used as a proper name of a nymph of all the nymphs of Greek mythology. We find it highly improbable that a man would bear such a name. It would be like a boy named Sue. We don't believe that nympha, a word that means a young wife or a bride, would be used to name a man. And therefore we have followed the one ancient manuscript in this passage, the Codex Vaticanus, which has the feminine pronoun, Nympha and the assembly at her house. In Philemon, verse 2, we learn that there is an, an assembly or a church at Philemon's house. Here we see there is an assembly or church at the house of Nympha. 
These are distinct assemblies or churches at each person's house. While all of Christian Israel should be one body in Christ, there is no such thing in scripture as one true church ruling over the entire body of Christ. However, Paul expects his epistle to be read at each of these assemblies. And he says in verse 16, And when the letter is read among you, ensure also that it is read in the assembly of the Laodiceans, and that from Laodicea, meaning the lost epistle, that also you should read, meaning the people at the house of Nympha and in these other places in Colossae. And not only does Paul expect his epistle to the Colossians to be read at each of the assemblies at Colossae, but requests that the epistle to the Laodiceans be read to each of them as well. Of course, this other epistle is now lost, and it is only known to have existed from this statement. Of course, the assembly at Laodicea the Laodiceans, is the seventh of the seven assemblies to receive messages from Christ in the opening chapters of the Revelation, which was recorded by John 30 years or so after this epistle was written. And Paul says, in his final verse, verses from verse 17 and 18. Also, tell Archippus, watch Archippus, the um, leader of horses, I believe. Watch the ministry which you have received by the prince, that you would fulfill it. This salutation of Paul is by my own hand. Remember my bonds. Favor be with you and only the Codex Claromontanus and the majority text append Amen to the end of the verse. Archippus is mentioned as a fellow soldier of Paul and Timothy in the opening verses of Philemon and must have therefore taken up the work of the gospel in Colossae. Paul seems not to be warning him but only to be exhorting him to work diligently. By this mention, Paul is also indirectly approving of the selection of Archippus for the ministry. With this, because it is intimately connected to Paul's epistle to the Colossians, both in content where it concerns the subject of slavery and in the involvement of Philemon and Onesimus, we shall present the brief epistle to Philemon here. Of course, we have already explained that Philemon was written at the same time that Paul had written Colossians, and that both of these epistles, along with the lost epistle to the Laodiceans, were delivered to the assemblies by Tychicus and Onesimus. Paul's epistle to Philemon. Paul, prisoner, or 
one manuscript has, Apostle, Paul, prisoner of Yahshua Christ, and Timotheus, the brother, to Philemon, the beloved, and our colleague, and to Athia, the sister, and the majority text has Athia, the beloved there instead, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the assembly at your house, favor to you, and peace from Yahweh our Father, and Prince Yahshua Christ. Once again, Paul is joined by Timothy, showing that Timothy is associated with Paul in his ministry, even though we know from the epistle to the Colossians, and from the salutation of this epistle, that many of his other companions are with him when this epistle is written. So Paul is elevating Timothy. Paul has Damas and Luke and Mark and, and, and Aristarchus, who was locked up with him from the beginning. He doesn't say in these, any of these epistles, Paul, prisoner of Joshua Christ, and Timothy and Mark and Damas and Luke and Aristarchus. He's elevating Timothy and associating him. In his ministry, which is which is a way of indicating to people that perchance anything should happen to Paul, Timothy would be his chosen successor. Not that we know that anything happened to the ministry of Timothy after Paul departed. We don't have the records and apostolic Christianity was more or less persecuted out of existence in a short time. But that's okay. We see that Timothy was Paul's chosen successor. The pronoun here, referring to your house, the assembly at your house, refers to certain, with all certainty, refers to none other than Philemon himself, since he is the primary recipient of the epistle. We do not otherwise know Aptia, and of course we only know Archippus from the mention of him at the end of Colossians. And Paul says in verse 4, I give thanks to my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have for Prince Joshua and for all the saints, how the partnership of your faith becomes effective in the knowledge of all goodness of that which is with us in Christ. For I have had much joy and encouragement by your love, seeing that the hearts, or literally the bowels, as we refer to the heart, the ancient Greeks saw the bowels as the source of feelings and affections. Seeing that the hearts of the saints are refreshed by you, brother. So Paul is complimenting Philemon in every way as we have seen in chapter 1 of the epistle to the Colossians. While it is evident that Paul had never actually met Philemon, nevertheless Epaphras had taken a report 
from Colossae back to the apostles in Rome, and being a Colossian himself, must have been able to inform Paul of Philemon's character and piety. Having a Christian assembly at his home, Philemon must have been a pious man to take such a risk at a time when Christians were being persecuted. And Paul says in verse 8, On which account, having great liberty among the anointed to enjoin to you that which is fitting, meaning that Paul saying that he could command of Philemon anything which is suitable, through love still more I exhort, being such as Paul the Elder, but now also a prisoner of Christ, Yahshua, I exhort you concerning my child, whom I have begotten in these bonds, Onassimus, whom at one time was useless to you, but now is useful to you and to me. And here Paul asserts a position of authority over Philemon on the basis that he is an elder of the Christian assemblies. Such deference to elders was given traditionally by the ancient Israelites and by those of the apostolic age as well, as we may see in the narratives in Acts chapters 11, 14, and 15. That this tradition should have been handed down in this manner is evident. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, where Paul wrote, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. However, it is also evident that elders were recognized by the assemblies themselves and not appointed over them by outsiders. Somehow, while he was a prisoner in Rome, Paul must have encountered Onesimus and brought him to the Gospel of Christ. How that happened may only be conjectured, and we won't venture to do that here. As the Apostle John had affectionately called those whom he had addressed in his epistles, my little children, Paul likewise saw those to whom he brought the gospel as his children, as he used that same phrase to describe the Galatians in chapter 4, verse 19, and as he had written to the Corinthians in chapter 4, verse 15 of 1 Corinthians, that although you may have a myriad of tutors among the anointed, certainly not many fathers. Indeed, in Christ Yahshua, through the good message, I have begotten you. Paul had founded the Christian assembly of Corinth. In that same manner, Paul says here that he had begotten Onesimus in these bonds. Now, as a digression, even this does not give a Catholic priest the right to the title of father. There is no lawful Catholic priest in the first place because to the Christian, 
all men have the obligation to fulfill the role of priest, yet there are no sacraments for a priest to dispense, not the way Catholic priests do. So we find that Onesimus was an escaped slave who belonged to Philemon. For that reason, because he was an escaped slave, he was useless to Philemon, as Paul says in verse 11. However, Philemon, as a Christian who had the ability to... I'm sorry. However, Onesimus... As a Christian who had the ability to work for the cause of the gospel is no longer useless, but rather for that purpose he is useful to both Philemon and to Paul. Paul desired that Philemon free Onesimus from his duties as a slave, but Paul, while he claims a right to assert such authority within the assemblies so as to command Philemon to release Onesimus for him, nevertheless refuses to exercise that right. Rather, Paul is recognizing Philemon's own rights over Onesimus as his slave. And for the work of the ministry, Paul is pleading with Philemon to free Onesimus on the basis of Christian love and what he may do in turn for the gospel of Christ. So in reference to Onesimus, Paul continues, whom I have sent back to you, he that is my own affections, or perhaps the object of my affections after our English idiom, whom I have wished to detain for myself, in order that, in behalf of you, he may minister for me in the bonds of the good message, as opposed to the bonds of slavery. Paul's making a play on words. But without your accord, I desire to do nothing, in order that your good would not be as if by force, but voluntarily. Onesimus, being a Christian, deferred to Paul's wishes and voluntarily returned to his master, going to Colossae with Tychicus for the delivery of these epistles and therefore going back to his master, Philemon. Paul asserts that he may have simply retained Onesimus to employ him in the service of the gospel, but instead he returned him because rightfully the choice belonged to Philemon himself over Onesimus' fate. Paul continues, Perhaps for this reason he was separated for a time, that you would hold on to him forever, no longer as a bondman, but more than a bondman, a beloved brother, especially to me, but now, I'm sorry, but by how much more to you, both in the flesh and with the prince. Here Paul appeals to Philemon, in an allegory illustrating the greater Christian purpose, that having a fellow worker in the gospel for eternity is better than having a slave only for the duration of this temporal life, hoping that Philemon chooses the later and frees Onesimus.
Paul then continues, Therefore, if you have me for a partner, receive him as me. Just as Christ said, He who receives you, receives me. Paul was telling Philemon that he should receive his escaped slave Onassimus as if he received Paul himself. And if he has wronged you or owes anything, this may be accounted to me. The majority text has this, you may account to me. So we see in the King James Version. Not only does Paul leave it to Philemon to decide to free Onesimus, but also offers to recompense him for any damages he has suffered through Onesimus. With this it should be evident that even an elder of the Christian church of like stature as Paul of Tarsus would not force a Christian man to suffer loss with the loss of a slave. Even Paul would not consider it right to do so. This alone should have then the example in our recent history, and all of those who went to war over the issue of slavery had absolutely no Christian moral grounds for fighting such a war. They really went to war because they abrogated their Christian responsibility as priests to their hired pastors, and their pastors were willing dupes for those worldly economic powers that wanted to destroy the Old South. The North did not have the moral upper hand that people think. That's a load of hogwash. Verse 19, I, Paul, have written in my own hand, I will make atonement in order that I do not say to you that you also owe yourself to me. In other words, Paul is not pressing Philemon. He's asking him to volunteer, but he's certainly not pressing him, telling Philemon that he owes him nothing but Paul will pay him yes brother I could profit from you by authority you among the anointed must refresh my heart the Codex Claromontanus appends the words and curio also to the end of verse 15 for which we may read the final clause of the verse, in order that I do not say to you that you also owe yourself to me by authority or with authority. Likewise, in verse 20, the phrase by authority is from the same Greek words, curio, which is often translated in the King James Version as in the Lord or with the Lord. In a different context here, the same phrase is, trans- is translated with the prince. The Greek word kurios is primarily of persons having power or authority over, or to be lord or master of. 
It is not always a substantive used as a noun, where it is mostly translated as Lord in the King James Version. Paul says in verse 21, Being confident in your obedience, I have written to you, knowing that you would do even more than the things I say. Now, at once also, prepare for me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I am released as a favor to you. Meaning, a favor from God. Possibly in return for his releasing Onassimus. Paul expressed confidence that Philemon would act properly as a Christian and release Onassimus according to Paul's request. However, Paul was not forcing Philemon to part with his property as Onesimus was his slave. Here Paul also confidently expresses the hope that he would soon be released from imprisonment, something which certainly never happened in spite of the claims of the 4th century church historian Eusebius, who with no other evidence used one particular passage in the epistle of Timothy, the second epistle of Timothy, as proof of his assertion. We have addressed that issue in the past and refuted it, and we shall do so once again when we present to Timothy here in the future, if Yahweh God is willing. And Paul says in verse 23 of Philemon, Greeting you, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Yahshua, Marcus, Aristarchus, Damas, and Lucas, my colleagues, the favor of our Prince Yahshua Christ is with your spirits. The codices Sinaiticus, Ephraimisiri, and a majority text all append Amen to the end of this epistle. The others don't. And here we see the same people with Paul as those in the salutation at the end of the epistle to the Colossians. These epistles to the Colossians and to Philemon were the last epistles written by Paul of Tarsus. As Luke is with him, when they were written, it is Luke who tells us at the end of the last chapter of Acts that Paul dwelt two years, two whole years, in his own hired house and received all that came into him. There is nothing in the ministry of Paul which can be shown to follow these two epistles chronologically in spite of the claims of Eusebius. Writing to Timothy, Paul asks the younger apostle to come to him in Rome, and he says in the last chapter of the epistle, you must be eager to come to me quickly, and, taking Mark, bring him with yourself, for he is useful to me for the ministry. So we see here and in Colossians that both Timothy and Mark are with Paul when these epistles are written. Paul then says, Damas has left me behind, where we have seen that Damas must have returned. And he also says, Luke alone is with me, and I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus, where here we also see that Luke is still with Paul, and that Tychicus has also returned from Ephesus by the time this epistle was written. 
after having delivered the epistle to the Ephesians, written not long before to Timothy was written. So following all of these last epistles of Paul's closely, we can indeed see rather clearly the order in which they were written. And we can also see that all of them were before these epistles to the Colossians and Philemon were written. However, Paul expressed confidence to the end that he would be released from his imprisonment in spite of the fact that he had already confided to Timothy otherwise, where he said, For I am already offered, and the time of my departure approaches, having struggled the good struggle. I finished the race, I kept the faith. Colossians and Philemon being the last of two of Paul's surviving epistles, it was not much longer until the time of his execution at the hands of Caesar Nero. Soon we shall resume our presentation of Paul's epistles with the very first of those which survive to us, which is his first epistle, to the Thessalonians. Tomorrow night, the Jews in Europe, the conversal problem and the Inquisition, part two. Praise Yahweh and thank you for listening.